Good evening. If you want to go ahead and start turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, we'll pick up where we left off this morning, um, beginning in verse 14. Uh, this morning we were looking at, uh, basically we're going through a portion here, Romans 9 through 11, uh, looking at how God is going to fulfill his promises uh, to Israel. Um, we see that at the end of Romans chapter 8, that nothing will be able to separate us, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that would seem to beg the question as to, well, what about the children of Israel? If they were God's people, if this was their Messiah, supposed to be their king, uh, came to them and they rejected him, why, why are not more um, Jewish people being saved? And Paul goes through chapter 9, uh, showing that the, the, it's not as though the word of God has taken no effect or fallen off. We see that God has always had this in his plan to fulfill his promise, and he goes through various portions um, from Isaac to Jacob and Esau. Uh, he also describes uh, that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, show, showing that in his promises the Gentiles were always included, that he would eventually reach out, or a, a nation. It says, um, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. Um, we also see that there would only be a remnant um, that would be saved <clears throat> out of Israel, and that really the gospel would be a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Um, so this leads to a, a, another question that they had. Well, um, what do we do? do? What do we do with the gospel with them? Does the gospel have no effect on them? And we see that in Romans chapter 10, it talks about how the children of Israel need the gospel, just like we need the gospel. And it explains <clears throat> that it has come to them and it is near them in their heart, all they would need to do is place their faith and trust in it. They're not going to achieve it by any of their own wisdom. They're not going to achieve it by any works of righteousness. It's coming to Christ in simple faith, um, as has been the, the pattern. So we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, and we're going to continue to look at the fact that what is God's motivation in his fulfilling of promises? And we see that one of the primary motivations that God has in fulfilling his promises is that he desires to show mercy. Um, God fulfills his promises in such a way that he can show mercy upon uh, the greatest amount of people possible. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, this is after um, verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Um, these would all be questions as in, well, how, how are we going to reach them? Who's going to go to them? How will they hear unless uh, somebody is sent? The, really, the truth of the matter is somebody was sent. Somebody did preach to them. And, in fact, they did hear and they, they know how to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, the point is that they rejected it. We think of uh, not only did Paul himself go to them with the gospel, but Christ Jesus came to them and preached to them, and they rejected. This verse, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, we take that as an application to ourselves as we go out and preach the gospel. Really, the perfect picture of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, how beautiful were those feet that came and preached uh, the good news to so many. 
Um, so that's really what we're, we're getting into, this, these fold questions that come about, and really they're rhetorical in a sense, because in verse 16 he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Um, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Uh, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words uh, to the ends of the world. Um, we see that Paul says the, the word has gone out to them, and they've simply rejected it. And he's explaining this, this great truth that we have, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. They're not going to achieve this faith. They're not going to achieve anything based on their own works. They're not going to achieve it by pursuing the law. They're not going to achieve it by um, ignoring the gospel. Uh, faith is going to come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's only going to come to those that are willing to trust what it says. Um, there's no way around it. You can't achieve it without God. Um, so it says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We see really in this portion that as the word of God continues to go out to the children of Israel, that it, is, uh, it brings great sorrow to the heart of God that they continue to reject him. Um, the sound has gone out, and, and he's saying it's not as though they didn't know this would take place. Because back in Deuteronomy 32, I told them that if they would go astray, that I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Exactly what happened um, is what God said would happen if they went astray, if they went to their own devices and they did not trust God in simple faith according to his word. <clears throat> and because of that, he was found by people that didn't seek him. Um, we see all of these Gentiles coming out, and they say, sirs, we would see Jesus. They, they were found by people that um, really Christ didn't come physically to at the time. And so <clears throat> really it continues to show the heart of God and that God is not in a way going to pour judgment upon judgment upon judgment on the children of Israel. Um, his heart is that they would come to him. He's stretched out his arms all day long. Um, so beginning in verse 11... We're going to get into a portion of the, the future of Israel. And the question that they have is, so has God cast away his people? Is God done with the nation of Israel? And the answer is no, he's not. Um, the question comes up because with all of this stuff being presented, well, the gospels come to him. If we preach the gospel to him, it's, it's a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They know what it is to be saved and they continue to reject it. God has continually reached out to them, and they continually harden their hearts. Um, so is God just going to say, well, I'm going to move on to the Gentiles and focus on them? And the answer is no, he's not. Um, chapter 11 uh, is the <clears throat> beginning. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, 
how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself even 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. <clears throat> so he's not saying that God has completely cast away his people because Paul himself is a Jewish man. He's saying that uh, the, the word of God has come unto me and I am now part of the church. I have trusted in Christ. Um, we see that in the portion here is referring to, he brings up um, Elijah. And we know that Elijah was one who um, went up against, I believe it was 450 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and really felt like it was just him all alone by himself. Um, there was nobody really by his side, and he comes to God in this desperate need, and he says, I alone am left. And God says, well, hang on, Elijah, I've, I've kept 7,000 for myself that have not bowed the knee. And there was a portion of the Jewish nation at the time that indeed had trusted Christ. The, the, the church, when it began, was made up of pretty much 100% Jewish people. Um, we see that there were those that he knew before that were believers waiting for the Messiah, looking for the coming king. And when the nation of Israel rejected him as a whole, they still accepted him. And they individually went. And now God is in a way dealing with individuals and not uh, the nation at the time. And so he's saying that even though all this has taken place, Paul himself, being a Jewish man, has become, has continued to follow the word of God. Um, proving that there, there is a remnant left. It's not as though God has completely done away with all the nation of Israel. <clears throat> In verse 5, Even so that at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. <clears throat> so we have this portion, the election of grace. What does that mean? Um, those of us that are a part of the church were part of we're, we're the elect and we're elect because of grace. We were born again um, in the spirit, and when we were born again, we became part of the church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is now an elect group of people. Well, how are we elect? We're elect by grace. It's something that God freely gave to us that we chose to accept um, in our hearts. And this is this idea that it's the same message that went to the children of Israel. Those individuals that came are now saved the same way that the Gentiles are. There's not a difference. It's not as though because they did so many good works and God saw their righteousness and their works and he decided, okay, you, you, and you, I'm going to take with me. These were Jewish people that believed the same way by faith in Jesus Christ, the same way people are saved uh, today. <clears throat> so we have um, verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always." Seems pretty harsh. Why, why is this taking place? Why all of a sudden... It, so you're saying that if they didn't accept Christ at the time, that God blinded them, that they would not see, and he, he stopped up their ears that they would not hear. Um, what is that really saying? What are we to take of that? And really, 
this idea of giving them a spirit of stupor eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day, meaning if they continue to go on their very way, they only become more and more blind. It only becomes harder and harder. The more that they reject Christ, the more that they can't see. The minute that they come to an end of themselves and trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior, the blindness is lifted. Um, we know this to be true. We look at the Apostle Paul. He was one who continued, continued, continued to persecute the church. And when the Lord Jesus comes, he says, it's, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Paul was really going against everything that the Spirit was, was telling him to do. And it was hard for Paul. Um, and we see that when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared, he says, Lord, what, what will you have me to do? Um, the minute he was able to come to an end of himself and going his own way, he was able to be saved. Um, the same way with any Jewish person today. But as a nation, if they continue to hold to their traditions and not the word of God, they will continue to be blinded. It's only when they are prepared to come out of that nation as an individual and trust in the true and living God. Um, as long as they continue to stay as a nation, they will be blinded. Um, <clears throat> so begs another question. If they're blinded, have they stumbled so bad that they would fall? Fall in such a way that they would not be able to get up. Excuse me. Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness so we see here, because of their choosing to reject the Messiah, God has decided to show mercy upon the Gentiles and offer the gospel free to them in Jesus Christ, a, a Messiah that really was not theirs, it, it was of the Jews. And we see the immense blessing that has come out of the rejection of Israel. So what does that teach us about God? It teaches us about God that in his heart, he's able to take a, a, a wicked work and really a heartbreaking act of the children of Israel and use that to bless a multitude of people that didn't deserve it. Um, really, it shows us the heart of our God and that he doesn't just condemn the nation of Israel at that time, completely annihilate them, and start over. He uses this as a way to bless the Gentiles, and that's really what Paul is saying here. Through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Um, if, if, all of these, if out of all of this wickedness, God was able to bless us so much, think of they did great things. How much more would God be able to, to bless us out of that? Um, and really, that's going to be God's plan in, in the future. Um, we see in uh, verse 13... <clears throat> For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And we're just going to take a couple minutes here um, in means of application. I believe that this is a very good portion to uh, apply to ourselves. We see that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. 
we also see that Paul's heart was for his own people, the Jewish nation. So how does Paul reconcile his calling of God with his heart's desire? And how are we to do the same? We have a calling of God that we are to go out and preach the gospel, and we may have a certain desire that we go to a certain group of people or we go about it in a certain way. Um, maybe we feel that, uh, uh, you know, our gift and our calling is really to build up the saints, but our heart's desire is to go out and preach the gospel to the lost. Um, how do we reconcile them both, and how do we continue to act upon it? We see that Paul here, understanding the workings of God, said if in any way the saving of the Gentiles is able to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy, and that from that jealousy Jews will begin to come out and to be saved, then I'm going to preach my heart out to the Gentiles that I might save some Jewish people. Um, in such a way, we are called in the church that if we are to manifest the true nature of God to the world, it is going to be by loving one another, by obeying his commandments. Um, there are certain things that say if, if you really have a heart for the lost, then you need to love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. If you really have a heart for the lost, then you really need to obey his commandments. If you really love the Lord Jesus, then you need to do what he asks us to do. And through that, our heart's desire will be met. Lost people will begin to get saved. And we ask, well, how does, I don't really get how that happens. Uh, we have to understand that that's, that's God's way. And that's God's way as revealed in the scripture. Um, Paul is able to see that clearly in this passage, and in, in his heart he says if, if the only way to save some Jewish brethren is to provoke them to jealousy by the saving of the Gentiles, and my ministry is to preach to the Gentiles, even though I would love to preach to the Jewish nation, I'm going to give everything I have to the preaching to the Gentiles, that I might save some of my Jewish brethren. So how do we view the promises of God, and how do we view our calling in how we act upon this? Um, are we doing it in such a way that we are going against uh, the will of God or making it in a way that is not clear in his word? We're going according to our own works. Therefore, we're not seeing as the blessing that we should be seeing. Um, I would suggest that maybe at the end of the night or throughout the week, we, we take a look at the, the ministries we are in and we say, how, how is it that God is going to reach this people? And what am I truly supposed to be doing in order for that to take place? that there might be uh, the greatest amount of blessing. So we see that, <clears throat> again, in verse 14, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Um, Paul's heart was to see the nation of Israel saved. Um, and we see that in, in doing so, he did it according to God's plan. And there will be great blessing in that. So that's just something that I wanted to, to point out as far as application goes um, from the scriptures. Beginning again in verse 16. Uh, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And as some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. 
The olive tree was a picture of the nation of Israel. Uh, we see the root as the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, because those that rejected Christ were broken off, a wild olive tree um, was able to be grafted in. We indeed are that wild olive tree. And he was able to take something that was not a part of it and graft it in and make it that way um, to partake of the fatness thereof. But we see that it is not in any way for us to boast about it. We don't look at the nation of Israel and do it in such a way where we um, put them down is really what's kind of being said here. Um, we have to remember that we were grafted in because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not anything we did. And often I correlate it to the idea of the, the gifts that we've been given. Uh, sometimes we tend to, to maybe boast in our gifts, but really we had nothing to do with it. It was, it was freely given to us. Uh, and there should be no boasting in it. Um, it should be a way to glorify uh, the Lord and the working of the ministry. Um, in verse 19, <clears throat> you will say then, uh, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Um, there's nothing in and of ourselves that we stand in this. It, it should bring us to fear. Why? Because there were natural olive branches that were broken off um, because of their uh, lack of faith. And because of our faith, we were grafted in. And it was a, a gracious thing that was done. And it's just a way to say, um, don't be haughty. Don't, don't be prideful. Um, and, and it's a constant thing that we need to remember. Uh, don't be prideful. Uh, there's so many things that we have, and I would say 100% of them are things that we've been given. Um, and we need to be... Uh, uh, we need to have a, a sense of, of fear and understanding that um, those things that have been given, some of them can be taken away and to not be in a way that you, it's to build you up and to make it worse. Um, <clears throat> Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Um, might cause a little scare there to be cut off. What does that mean? Um, we see that the nation of Israel was who God had chose to work in the world. Um, we see that when the Messiah came and Israel rejected, we see the birth of the church, and that is how God is going to work in the world. Uh, we know that one day the church is going to be called out, an apostate church. Um, all of the true believers will be raptured up, and God will again pick up the nation of Israel. So in a sense here, this portion is actually going to, to take place um, because of the church's continual disobedience, and because of the lack of belief in, in the apostate church, um, God will have to cut them off, bring them out, and there will be uh, a working in the nation of Israel again. Um, so he's saying, don't let this um, bring up this pride, and he brings up these results that these things are going to take place. Um, how wicked a sin is pride? And I think we need to keep that in mind. Um, we see that from pride comes a number of terrible, terrible things. Um, and really, Paul is just warning that through this doctrine, through this understanding that you're now able to see the workings of God, it should lead us to a state really of, of awe, not of pride. 
And if it's leading us to pride, we have to remind ourselves, again, that we had nothing to do with it, that it's, it's all the workings of God, and it should lead uh, to the praise and glory of his name. In verse 24, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we see the purpose, really, of the blinding of the nation of Israel. Again, it's a, it's a mercy of God to um, the Gentiles that now the, the Gentiles are free to, to come in. And now that that's taken, that has taken place, there is a set number that will come in. And after that has taken place, the church will be taken up and taken out. And indeed, the uh, nation of Israel will be picked up again and grafted in, and they will be the head of the nations. So... In this portion of Romans, we, they were, Paul is dealing with a couple of questions and a couple of issues as, as far as the promises of God go with the nation of Israel. Um, really, the first one was if the promises were to Israel and the Messiah came and they rejected him, now what happens? Now, now what does God do with the nation of Israel? And then Paul explains that the promises work out in a specific way that was actually stated in the scripture before. Um, the next question would be, well, do they have to do any more to be saved because they've rejected him? And the answer is no. The, the word is near them, even in their heart. They simply need to have faith in Christ. Um, he is a stumbling block to them if they continue to go their own way. But if they fall on him, then they will be saved. Um, it would lead to yet the next question. As in, so as a nation, they're going to be cast away. There's going to be no dealing with them as a nation as a whole. And again, the answer is no. God is going to, again, deal with the nation as a whole. Right now, he's calling out individuals, and eventually, he will call them out as a nation again. Um, we see that they will be uh, grafted in again. And really, what, is this, what does this do for us? Who, who cares, um, again, what happens to the nation of Israel? Really, what it is is to show us the heart of God and how he desires to keep his promises and how he desires to show mercy. Um, and if it is his heart to act in such a way, how are we acting in the world? If we are to be a manifestation of the living God to the lost world, um, does that resemble our going out? If somebody rejects, if we preach the gospel to somebody and they immediately reject it, do we just cross them off the list and say, well, I tried. You know, I, I gave it a shot, you know, and they rejected it. Um, how many of us believed the gospel the first time we heard it? Um, I personally don't know how many times I, I heard the gospel before I actually trusted in it. Um, we see that it is an opportunity for us to be thankful in the mercy of God and that he continually reaches out to people. Um, our God is a seeker of men. He desires all men everywhere to be saved. And we think of really the, the, the length of time that has taken place from Israel's rejection of the Messiah, that all the fullness of the Gentiles come in, the, the, the immense opportunity that has gone out um, for all men to be saved. And not only that, that a, a nation that rejected him, that he's working all of this to provoke them to jealousy that he might bring them back in. Uh, 
this should cause us to really praise and glorify the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if it, if it doesn't, then we're not, we're, not, we're not getting the real picture of what's going on here. As I said earlier, the, the portion here in Romans comes after the, this whole portion is the, the gospel, and after the gospel we have this righteous living in practice. In order to be able to live out the way we are supposed to, we have to have this correct doctrine. Um, and this correct doctrine should be leading to the praise and worship of God. And out of that, we should be empowered to go out and to do the will of God in the world. Um, this is not something that we can just say, just tell me what to do. Sometimes I get like that at work. I don't need to know all the details. Just, just tell me what I need to get done today, and I'll get it done. And if you start a project in construction and you're just the task man, um, you, you never get to understand the full picture. Um, a lot of times this happens with clients where work will be going on and they say, well, why do you do this before you do that? And you just kind of normally in a hurry and you say, well, don't worry about it. That's just how it gets done. Um, and, and as it continues to get done, they're able to see, wow, okay, now I'm starting to understand why this all took place the way it did. Um, in this way, we, we can't just say, well, give us just the righteous living part. Just give me Romans 12, 1 to 15, 4, and I don't need any of the other stuff. Just tell me what to do. And say, Without the understanding of God and the workings of God to lead to the worship of God, we won't have any power and we won't have any will to do it. Often the biggest problem that we have is not the knowledge of what to do, but the desire and we, we lack the desire to do it because the doctrine doesn't lead us to praise and worship God. Um, and, and, that, and that's in our fault. Somehow we've become a group where the pride has built up in such a way that we feel like we've deserved this. We've earned it. Or um, we, we didn't reject Christ and, and we accepted him and, and we honor his name. And because of that, we're, we're okay. We don't really need to do anything else. So this doctrine, this, this portion that we're going through should lead to a praise and worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if it isn't, we're probably dealing with a pride issue. That or we're not fully understanding just the utter magnificence of, of what's taking place in the word of God and in our lives. So this, this portion does have an immense deal to do with, with how we live um, we see that right after this begins Romans chapter 12. Oh boy. And um, we, need to, we need to have that motivation. And Paul has taken um, really 11 chapters that will motivate us for the three chapters that he's going to give us and what we should be doing. So if you're just looking at the, give me something practical, give me something I should do, <clears throat> that should be like the 15 minutes of the hour. We should be spending that 45 minutes really looking into who God is, his promises given, his mercy shown, his love toward us, um, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and from that time spent looking at really the true and living God, we will be motivated to, to live that spiritual life that we, we desire. We desire in thought, but we may be going about it in the wrong way. Um, and if we are going about it in the wrong way, we won't see as, as much blessing as we should. Um, we see that Paul, again, in the previous portion, was able to 
put his whole heart into the preaching to the Gentiles, knowing that that is the best way for him to reach the Jewish nation. So for us to go out and to live the greatest spiritual life we possibly can, it has to stem from a true knowledge of God and a true worship of God. Because that's really what God desires. This communion, this fellowship, um, uh, worshipers that will worship in spirit and in truth. And out of that, the works will come. Out of that, the service will take place. <clears throat> so in ver- again, in verse 24, uh, we'll just read that portion over again. If you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And if you look at the timeline that God has laid out, um, one of the portions that you can go to is really the Feast of Jehovah. Um, we see that the Feast of Jehovah is really God's dealing with the nation of Israel over time, if you trace it out. Um, we have the Passover, and you have the um, Feast of First fruits, unleavened bread, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Those portions have already been fulfilled, and there's New Testament backing to show Christ our Passover. We see that the day of Pentecost, when the two loaves were presented uh, with leaven in them, a symbol of the Jew and the Gentile in one offering, um, the Spirit coming down, those things that have taken place already. <clears throat> in the future, there's this gap in the calendar for the nation of Israel. In the future, there will be the Feast of Trumpets, a gathering together of the nation of Israel into one location. And then we have the Day of Atonement after that. Um, What is the Day of Atonement? If Christ is our Passover, then what does the Day of Atonement represent? And really this portion is saying that the day that all Israel will be saved, he's talking about as, as a nation. So as a nation, all of the other nations will come to battle against Israel. And at that time the Lord Jesus Christ will return, and they will look on him in whom they have pierced, and they will believe. And at that point, that is really the Day of Atonement, when, when the blood of Christ that was sacrificed will cover the entire nation as a whole. And after that, you have the, the Feast of Booths, which was really a, a gathering around <clears throat> in tents. And we see that uh, the millennial uh, kingdom is really a picture of that uh, Feast of Booths that will take place. Um, where they will always be with the Lord <clears throat> at the time. So we see that this was planned from the very beginning. This isn't something that caught God off guard. Um, God had this plan thoroughly laid out um, from the beginning. <clears throat> verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. 
So he says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They are enemies of the gospel, and because of that, the gospel has come to us. Um, it says, concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. However, God still has a promise for the nation of Israel that they will dwell in the land, that they will be the head of the nations, that all nations will come to Jerusalem to learn of God. Um, they are elect nation, and they're elect for the sake of the fathers. There's promises that went to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God will make right on. Um, it didn't happen in the way the children of Israel wanted it to happen, even though God over and over through his word told them it wouldn't. Um, and in this portion, we see that it's not because of anything that they've done, they're elect, but because of who God is and how he desires to fulfill promises. And again, we get back to this idea, well, how does he desire to fill promises and what is his motivation? And he says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can't take them away. Um, he, he's already given. He's already called. Um, he can't take it back. That's not his way. He's not going to give you something and take it back. <clears throat> so it says, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Uh, God's desire in the working of his promises and his motivation is to show mercy. Um, because of the disobedience of, <clears throat> well, we were once children of disobedience, because of the nation of Israel, we have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Eventually, <clears throat> these also now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Uh, the mercy that has been shown us and the dealings with Israel, the suffering that they're going to go through, eventually that God may show mercy on them. We have to remember this is the nation that rejected the Messiah, not only rejected him, but crucified him. When God's son came, they nailed him to a tree. And they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Caesar is our king. And yet God has orchestrated in things in such a way that he may show the greatest amount of mercy on that nation. As possible. And really all of this portion has led up, the, the mercy shown begins from Romans chapter 1, um, that we were all sinners, that we were all under this condemnation, um, the justification that was offered, uh, the sanctification that works itself out, really the, the, the way God is going to deal with the nation of Israel, all of it is really God just showing mercy. And we see that after Paul has written all of these things and come to the end of really his doctrinal portion, what does it lead him to do? In verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It leads Paul to just worship God. You couldn't, you, we couldn't work this out. We couldn't think this up. Um, we couldn't imagine the love of God to be as great as it is. It is far greater than we can imagine. And the way he desires to show it to a nation that is continually disobedient is by showing mercy. Um, and really the things that we have to keep in mind is that is what we are to portray. If there's discord 
amongst the brethren, if there's issues that exist, if there's a disunity, all of these things, the heart of God is in a way to, to show mercy, not because they deserve it, but because it's in our nature, being children of God. It wasn't in our nature before. We were children of wrath. We wanted everybody, if somebody did something wrong, we wanted punishment, and we wanted judgment, and we wanted righteousness. When we did something wrong, we want mercy, and we need to flip that around. We want, we want to have mercy on those um, that maybe in a way don't deserve it. Uh, why? Because that's the, the heart of and nature of our God. Um, and really, <clears throat> it, it, it's unsearchable. It says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We could pursue trying to understand it for the rest of eternity and we wouldn't get there. Um, the little bit that we know of the love and mercy of God, of, of how he executes his judgments, um, of how he works in the world, in the lives of believers and the lost, he is so great, we can't come to a full understanding of it. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? Um, nobody. Nobody. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that's really the amazing part of it all. God has a right to all of it. And he has a right to work in such a way that he does as he pleases. Um, because it belongs to him. And the way God decides to work is in our best benefit. And that's truly the, the heart of the God that we serve. Um, he does things in a way that we would receive the most blessing. He does things in such a way that we would receive the greatest amount of mercy. And not only on top of that, but then he showers his grace upon us. Not only does he keep us from all the judgments and all the suffering, but he, he makes us sons of God. He makes us co-reigners with Christ. He gives us new life. He calls us his children. He has a place that's going to be prepared for us for all of eternity. We will be with his son, and we will indeed be like him. Not only does he show that mercy, but he pours the grace on us. Um, and really, as I said earlier, all of this doctrine leads to this worship of God. And then we have in, verse tw in chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, considering the mercies of God that we've looked at tonight and considering the mercy of God that we've been shown in our own lives, are we living out Romans 12, 1 and 2? Have we made our lives really a living sacrifice, an offering to the Lord. We belong to him. He's redeemed us. We've looked at all the things that really, how he's shown mercy on us, um, and really this is the motivation we have for, for service in the world. Um, it's reasonable. It, it makes sense that we should have a desire to serve him. Um, so I leave you with that uh, this evening. I hope this was helpful. Uh, this is a, a difficult portion of scripture um, to go through, 
And um, if anyone still has questions about anything, I'd love to talk. If anybody has instruction, I'd love to hear it. Correction, again, I'd love to hear it. So uh, please feel free. But hopefully this leads to a praise and glorification of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for greater service in his name. Uh, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this evening, and we are just a thankful people. Uh, we are a humble people, realizing uh, really our place, uh, that we were a wicked, uh, a wicked group of people, sinners. Father, going away, shaking our fist at thee, and we see that in your great mercy, the free offer of salvation has come unto us. And Father, by faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been born again into all of these blessings that we did not deserve and we did not even know possible. Um, Father, we pray that as we continue to uh, seek after thee, as we continue to seek thy face, to um, build one another up, to be a, a united body in Christ, um, we pray that uh, the Spirit would continue to lead and to guide us, to bring us together, that we would grow into a fuller knowledge, the fullest knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that it would lead to an overflow of blessing. Father, not only that we would be strengthened one another, but that that blessing would overflow and we would see souls saved. We would see souls born again, that by the mercy shown us, that you may show mercy to others. For we know that you are a God that desires to show mercy. So, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.